Breaking the stigma of addiction. This is Zach's life, a story of love, addiction, loss, grief, and recovery. Reflecting on Zachary Horton and others in our community, both, both inside, inside and outside of their addiction. addiction. Hosted by Jim Horton of the Zachary Horton Foundation. Hi, good morning, Mary Beth. Good morning. Hey, today is uh, an exciting day, N not only because uh, my audience gets to meet you, but because I get to use uh, the Zoom recording, uh, a part of the podcast. So if you're listening to this on the podcast, uh, if you go and, and, and find it on the YouTube channel, then you'll be able to uh, uh, see both Mary Beth and I as we uh, discuss these great topics today. So uh, yeah, this is going to be a lot of fun. Um, uh, today, uh, my guest is, uh, Mary Beth O'Connor. Uh, Mary Beth, uh, has a, an incredible, uh, uh, book uh, that she's uh, written called From Junkie to Judge. She's a retired federal judge. She has a long, she has a long history of substance use disorder. She has a long history of recovery. Uh, she has, uh, did, did not necessarily follow a traditional 12 step uh, a, a program from from what I've read uh, Mary Beth in your uh, in in all your bio information and as you know our podcast of uh, focuses on love addiction loss grief and recovery and I know as I read your story that melds just so wonderfully uh with with what you talk about um so you know I I want to get your words in as much as possible today so uh, please, as it as it fits into all of that, uh, please just tell us about your history. Uh, tell us about your recovery. Tell us about the things that are so Im important to you and the and the incredible message that that I hear that you're sending out. So, um, actually, for me, things that started not well from before I was born <laughs> because my it was 1961 and my mother was an unwed Catholic Irish Catholic mother, and this was problematic. And so after she she had me, uh, she wasn't allowed to bring me home. And I lived with the nuns for the first six months of my life. And I think she says she visited and I expect she did. But it, it wasn't that, you know, bonded, spending a lot of time with your mother situation. And then even when I moved in with her, she wasn't really that interested in being a mom. She wasn't focused. I mean, she fed me. She clothed me. She took me to the doctor, you know, all the basic things. But there wasn't um, attention. She wasn't particularly interested in what I was doing or thinking. She was more interested in you not irritating her <laughs> or doing something that would make her yell or hit. And so that. Well, and, and, and let me say that's not uncommon for, you know, I'm a, my, my birth date's in 1962. So our parents were, were of that era, right? So th that's not necessarily uncommon that children were to be seen and not heard. And if you were heard <laughs> too much, you understood why. <laughs> <laughs> yes, to a degree, but I will say she was more um, uh, uh, lost control and got a lot angrier and a lot less triggered than what I saw it happen in other households when I was visiting my friends. But but you're right, it wasn't the same uh, hyper focus on child rearing that we have today. That that is that is true. 
Um, so when she, um, she left me again with my great grandmother for three years from when I was six until when I was nine. And my great grandmother was a, a good woman. That was basically a calm time. Um, but then my mother married my stepfather when I was nine and I moved in with them and he was really, uh, exceedingly violent. He was very violent with her. He was verbally, emotionally, physically, and sexually violent with me. It, it was the kind of, put, well, at first, I tried to figure him out, like, how can I satisfy this person, right? How, what are, what are these new rules that I'm not used to? Like, he had a thing about don't, I wasn't allowed to call my mother she, couldn't refer to her as she, had to say mom or something similar every time, or couldn't go barefoot in the house. Well, I'm from New Jersey in the summer, you always went barefoot. So there was a lot of weird rules that I tried to figure out and adjust to. Um, but over time, I realized that no matter what I did, the violence was going to hit me. It was just, I never knew when, because I could do the same exact thing 20 times and 19 of those times, it was fine. And on the 20th, it was suddenly, um, uh, you know, uh, an error worth, worth a beating. And so I got beat for things like spilling milk or putting a dirty dish away. I developed techniques that I taught my sister, like um, when my stepfather was sleeping, when we were doing our chores, I taught her to put one dish away in the cabinet at a time when we emptied the dishwasher because it so wouldn't rattle, right? And so it was just a lot of trying to trying to reduce the violence, but there was no way to eliminate it. And so there could be weeks where he was happy, but you just, you never knew. So it was a lot of stress and strain from that not knowing when an attack was going to happen and having no real control over what was going to trigger him. So that was, that was problematic. <laughs> and, and, and I'm sure as a children, you know, we, we understand, you'll know, believe that whatever happens in the world, good and bad, it has to do with them it's their fault or they caused it somehow that has to be a heavy burden on a nine-year-old to yeah and again for you to have to go through the mental calisthenics of figuring out how, how do i how do i make this stop because i have to be in control i'm doing something wrong it's oh one dish at a time that'll make it okay right <laughs> I, I mean how I mean, I mean we we can look at it now and we just realize how bizarre that is and we know that it's not your fault that that was that was his illness that was his sickness but still i'm sure at that time you felt like somehow that you had to own that i did in the beginning i just thought well this is a new household with different rules and i just have to you know could figure out the rules and comply but but over time certainly within a year mm -hmm. i knew that that was not what was happening you know what was happening was he was tired he was angry he was mad about something that happened you know, at work or with my mother and he would lash out. So I did realize that it wasn't really about me um, and that the best I could do was reduce the frequency, but I couldn't eliminate the threat. And so that's part of what made drugs look appealing to me, you know, because my, I started using my first drug, which was alcohol at 12. And I remember that first time it was Boone's Farm Strawberry Hill wine, which I think a lot of people are familiar with. It, um, very sweet, but it was when I had that first drinks, it was really like like my tension got released. I felt like I could giggle and I laugh with my girlfriend. We were down in our basement alone. You no, know, no one else was home, and it was just like 
a breath, you know, I could take a breath. I could really feel looser and more connected with her. And so it was a positive experience in the beginning. And that is why people who have abuse histories like I do have, I think it's a four to six times greater rate of developing substance use disorders. It looks in the beginning like it's helping, uh, but, you know, it doesn't help for long. <laughs> That's the problem. Right. right. Yeah. But, but it, again, it, it, at your age and in your preteen years or your teen years, you're just looking for anything. Yes. Yes. You're looking for that. And then all of a sudden, then that becomes a solution until it's, until it's not. Right. I mean, I started pursuing alcohol pretty much right away. I was looking for opportunities to drink and, you know, we would raid our parents' liquor cabinets or um, the drinking age was actually 18 in New Jersey when I was young. So I had easier access as a young 13, 14 year old girl who was actually, I was tall. I looked older. I did hair and makeup. I was always going out with older guys. So I had pretty easy access to alcohol. Um, and then it the next step was, was pot, you know, weed, as they would say today. And then I, we start, we always stole pills out of parents' medicine cabinets and we'd figure out which ones did something, and which ones didn't. Um, and then it, when I was 16, it got, things took a big turn because I found what became my drug of choice, which was methamphetamine. And I was shooting up at 17 and in full bore addiction when I graduated from high school. So it escalated pretty quickly. Wow. Now, was that was that common in in your high school? Was was meth use in your neighborhood or your neck of the woods, or were you really an outlier in that? So it was just really coming into town at um at in volume. So meth had existed before, but it wasn't mass produced. At least it wasn't distributed in my area of Central New Jersey until the mid seventies. There were biker gangs out in Western Pennsylvania that were producing it. That was what was my understanding. And so there was a, it was relatively new that it was easily accessible. And we really didn't view it as, you know, problematic, you know, heroin, at, heroin was bad. Don't do heroin. That's how you, you know, you right, get addicted. Right. But meth, you know, is fun. Although the truth is within six months of the meth flood, there were a number of people having problems. Um, but I was definitely on the extreme end, edge of frequency of use, severity of use, other, other people using meth would tell me I was overdoing it, that I needed to sleep, that I needed to slow down. So it, it, was, it was in high volume. Uh, my people, the drugby people, a, a noticeable percentage used it, but not the way I did, not at the you know constant daily, pretty much not doing any other drug except meth very quickly. Wow. Now, and, and so what, and so this was, uh, so your graduation was probably close to my, probably around 79, 80. Yes. Right. 79. Which, yeah. Right. Right. So then, and I know that, uh, soon after that, the, the, the national message that we heard about drug use over the air, that would have been the, uh, Nancy Reagan campaign really was the just say no. Yeah. 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 Do you have any recollection about how that hit you or what kind of effect that that had on, on you or, or the people that were around you? 
I mean, I was probably in college by the time that happened, but we, you know, in my world, it, it was a joke, right? Just saying, no, first of all, we thought, why would you? But also remember, we had been given a lot of false messages about drugs earlier, right? About LSD was going to make you go crazy and end up in a mental institution. Well, that clearly wasn't the case. Lots of people I knew did acid and nobody ended up in anything like that. Or that pot was somehow way worse than alcohol, which was visibly not true, <laughs> visibly not true from looking at the people who struggled with alcohol was a much bigger group than the people who struggled with marijuana. And so we, the messages that we had been given about drugs previously were not true. And so this was just another one of that category. But also later, as I tracked this in the news, it became clear that the data showed it wasn't working, which wasn't a big surprise to, to us. I mean, to just tell people to say no isn't really that helpful. You have to give them techniques, but you also have to figure out what's the root cause of people turning to drugs. And, and again, the other thing is just say no suggests that all drug use is problematic. And that's just not true. I mean, a lot of people use alcohol and cannabis and even, you know, LSD and Coke occasionally now and then, and they don't become addicted. I mean, I think people need to be aware of the risks so they can make an informed choice. But just say no was partly saying that any any drug use, including any and all marijuana use, was somehow making you a, a hardcore drug addict whose life was going to explode and, and go downhill and you would have no success, which was clearly not true. Well, sure. And, and I think culturally, we have a history of, um, when I say we, uh, uh, parental figures, uh, leader figures, we have a history of, of lying yes. uh, to, to the public. So, you know, we put out uh, reefer madness, right? You know, I remember the old video, you know, again, someone I've smokes marijuana and they, and, they, and they turn into some kind of a, a, a horrific fiend. Or again, anyone who uses, uh, anyone who uses, uh, you know, heroin, you know, is, is completely lost and they're under a bridge with their teeth falling out and and, and they're homeless, right? And so these are the experiences. And then when we understand, and, and this is this is what's hit me so uh, uh, just, just in my face about even the message that I gave to my son. And now I've, I've said this a couple of times as this, be, as this begin to resonate with me. When my son was young and he was, he would be sick at home. The first thing I would do is I'd give him a pill of something, right? Your allergies are up, you know, you here, here's a Benadryl, right? You know, okay, we're going to take care of that. And then if he got really sick or if he had a cold, you know, here's some child, you know, right now there's a, there's a national uh, uh, scare that we can't get enough, uh, you know, medicine for children, you know, in, in, you know, in, in the drugstores, right? So our kids are sick. We want them to be better. We give them some medicine. We give them a drug, right? And then if they're really sick, we go to the doctor and the doctor prescribes even a stronger drug for them. And then somehow now we're surprised when they're 14, 15, and they're in high school and they're feeling anxiety or they're feeling different. And their friends who now is their source of information, the people they trust, say, here, take this, and they take it. And and, and now we want to give them the message that 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 all drugs are bad when we've been telling them their whole life that that, that that's what's good. I mean, I talk about mixed messages and, and we still feel that I still feel that today, you know, because there's different studies come out about uh, either foods or supplements or medications that I may even be taking. So it's, it's uh, again, mixed messages 
all the time. Well, I, mean, I think it's particularly true around alcohol, right? Because alcohol, what is alcohol? It's a liquid legal drug. It is the number one substance killer in America, and yet it's legal. There's no rational basis why alcohol would be legal, and especially why cannabis went, but even other drugs. Um, but on the other hand, I think we do want to educate our children about the true risks, right? Give them the real information, accurate information, also how to look for signs if they're developing a problem and what to do about that. I know my younger nieces and nephews, I, I had a lengthy uh, substance use disorder. Their mother does, their, did their father. And so when they were coming into their teens, what I said to them was, look, I'm not saying your friends might not have fun drinking or smoking pot or whatever. What I'm saying to you is you are at higher risk. And so you need to be more careful and you need to pay attention. If you do use these substances, is it becoming a problem? Because there is some data that suggests that it's a higher risk um, genetically, but also they were growing up in an environment that was problematic and that the environmental impact also would have put them at higher risk. So I try to be honest with them here. It destroyed me for many years. And, you know, and, but I can't say your friends aren't having fun or that there's not, you know, a social uh, aspect to it, that many people use these things um, without developing a problem, but you have a higher risk and you need to keep that in mind. Yeah. Well, which is what we do with, with other diseases. It's what we do if, if, if my family has a history uh, of, of cancer, right. Right. And of skin cancer. And if we're a light skinned family, then we, you know, that's another analogy that I bring in all the time. You know, we, you know, sunscreen is evident. It's not that you can't ever go out in the sun, but you need to be aware of it. You need to wear a hat. You know, you, you need to wear a swim shirt. You know, we need to, to put a, a sunscreen on, you know, I, I mean, and we have those conversations with our children about those things over and over and over and over. It's not once at fifth grade or you know once when you go into high school or yeah that, that's right i mean and the other thing is that for example with 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 uh, cannabis they weren't even the government wasn't even allowing research and so only now are they doing the research that's going to show us the true the data for the true risk of cannabis i mean don't get me wrong right now it looks like it's much less problematic than alcohol and most other drugs but that doesn't mean it's it's a hundred percent risk-free and so, you know, it's better that we get the data so that we can inform the people that are considering it. Here's what the real risks are. Here's, you know, smoking is worse than edibles. Or, you know, if, if you see these symptoms or if, if you're using it for these reasons, I mean, a lot of it's really about why are you using it? And we don't even focus today in substance use disorder definitions necessarily on how often or how much, but really about the impact of it. Is it interfering with your life? Is it interfering with your ability to do schoolwork? Are you dropping your extracurricular activities because you're spending so much time or you're hungover? Are right. you losing friendships? Are your friends expressing concerns? You know, all of those sort of factors to be looked at so that um, we can help them stay on top of it if they choose to do it and that the any problem signs get recognized and attacked early. And the other side of that is that a lot of teenagers and, and adults use it as a um, as a as a way to treat mental health issues that would be better treated other ways, but they're not put into the mental health system either because of lack of insurance, because we don't have readily available, affordable mental health treatment for a large 
group, you know, percentage of our population and or, you know, medications. And so if we can keep our eye on, is there a mental health issue that's raising its head? Let's resolve that. Let's jump on that. And then maybe the drug problem won't ever arise because it's being treated appropriately, uh, the right treatment for the right condition. Right, right. Well, and, and I can, that, that, uh, Mary Beth, that awareness, that understanding really in, in my mind, having those discussions that really helps eliminate the stigma, right? Which is one of, which is the, the, the you know, mission of our foundation is about eliminating the stigma of, of addiction, right? But, but you know what, that stigma of, of mental health, that stigma of somehow, uh, if if someone uh, has a substance use disorder, if someone's experiencing depression, if someone has that, that that's somehow a weakness, right? In them, it's something to be hidden. It's something that I can't, uh, you know, that I can't uh, talk about. And only when <clears throat> I, I know in the news just recently, uh, just recently, um, uh, the producer from Ellen's show, who was the DJ there. Uh, Stitch, I believe you know. Uh, Twitch, yeah, Twitch, yeah. Twitch uh, passed from a uh, from from a from a suicide, you know, and and for for a week, that's what we heard, right? And and there's commercials about it, which is which is great that there's awareness. But but uh, how was it that uh, obviously he didn't wake up that morning and all of a sudden was so overwhelmed with depressed with depression or whatever his issue was that 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 was the cause. It was something that had been developed, but it's nothing that that anyone even in the hollywood world where where there's paparazzi and everyone knows everybody's business all the time you know there wasn't a headline about that that had ever reached uh, the pages so he was able either he felt like he needed to yeah, yeah keep it keep it hidden or again the stigma surrounding that was you know was was so great and that's boy again just being able to to have these discussions to, being able to be <clears throat> to be honest now it, and I'm saying when we're in the middle of this, I mean, you you are years and years and years past, you know, the, the the severity of your disease. And you're able to talk about it now frequently. My guess is in the beginning when you started, that wasn't something that you wanted to write books about and announce and and, and get out there. And, and, and nor was it when I found out about my son's, uh, you know, struggles. I didn't want to uh, uh, go out and tell everybody. In fact, I was... I was in such denial because I don't know what, I don't know. I was, I was, I was embarrassed. I was ashamed. I, I don't even know if those are the right, right words because it didn't even come into my mind. I just denied it. The brain is an incredible vehicle that can just, you know, stop you from recognizing reality in, in some of those cases. So how do we, how, how do we do that? How do we have the discussion you and I are having now? How do we have that with our children who we don't even imagine have any, mental illness or 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 any uh, propensity toward drug addiction how do we have it with them now yeah i mean i i think it's I, I, look i'm not a parent and so there's a limit to how much you know well founded my advice is but in general when i look around my family and i will say when i talk i do emphasize that i am a friend and family too right of substance use disorder and other mental health issues everyone i know in recovery is also a friend or family member of people who are struggling with these things because that's 
our social group, but also our families tend to have, um, you know, some of these similar problems that run through it. So I understand the frustration with my, you know, with my siblings or friends of trying to get them into recovery. I understand we don't have the control that we want. I mean, I put my sister in my rehab and um, she, and, and she stayed there for eight days, you know? So, you know, I, I understand that, that struggle to try, why don't you just do what I'm telling you to do? I'm right. Yes, you are probably right, but that doesn't mean you can just, you know, get people to automaton into your plan. Um, but it, I think it is for parents in particular because they're living with the person. So hopefully they can have a history of open communication up to those teenage years that will be a good foundation. But the reality is that teenagers push parents back and they rebel and it, the relationship becomes more challenging. And so even if if you have the good foundation, hopefully it'll make it more likely they'll turn to you, but also trying to keep your eyes peeled and pay attention to what's going on. I, I think one of the, the real challenges of today is that so many of the overdose deaths are of, of people who are casual users. Right. It used to be that almost all of the overdose deaths were people who had a substance use disorder. And and first of all, that's heroin, of course. But I think people underappreciate how many people die from stimulants. It's a you know, it's it's a significant number. Tens of thousands of a year to also die from stimulants. But with fentanyl, people are dying when they aren't really um, they don't have a substance use disorder. They're just using here and there. And that's part of the sort of the shocking new reality. So it, it's harder to see the signs if your child right, right. isn't in the midst of an ongoing substance use problem. If it was at a party or it's casual or, you know, they ordered something off the internet for them and their five friends. And so I think it is harder, you know, it is harder today to really be able to see it, but it's important all the more reason to have honest, realistic conversations about the risks, to talk about what's happening today. People are ordering things. They don't know what's in them. I don't care what you're taking today, unless you test it, you don't know what's in it. And even if you test it for fentanyl, those strips, it's good. It's great. They need to be readily available. They don't tell you the percentage, right? And so is it a little bit of fentanyl? Or is it more? And when I say fentanyl, of course, a small amount is a high dose, actually. But still, you know, is it 2% fentanyl or is it 20% fentanyl can right, matter right. in your risk? So I do think parents need to educate themselves about the current reality and why it is that even casual users are a significant part of the deaths and then have those um, fact-based conversations yeah. with their children. Yeah. Awesome. Well, so... And, and and thank you. This is, I mean, this is great information uh, for our families. And again, just the, the same way that we're having this conversation, parents can begin to have that conversation. And it doesn't have to be a, um, it doesn't have to be uh, shrouded in negative connotations. It's it's just a, a factual conversation that we're having. And, and frankly, it's not just parents having those conversations with their friends. My gosh, if 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 I could have had those conversations with my golfing buddies, mm -hmm. right? Or just the guys that I'm having coffee with or the people that I'm working with. If we had had those conversations, my level of denial and misunderstanding may not have been so high. I would have recognized things, you know, sooner. So yeah, yeah absolutely. So <clears throat> so let's go back a little bit to, to your story. So so now, okay, we we see your your you're at you're at uh, the end of high school. You're an IV meth user. You have really graduated in more ways than one, 
right? <laughs> to 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 where you're going in your life. So so how did you get from because this is strange, I don't want to be lost on this. How did you get from there to to judge? That's uh I mean, what a story. Again, you've got you've got lots of stories. You should write a book. Oh, wait. <laughs> I did. <laughs> Um, yeah, so um, so for me, I actually, I did go to college. I, I went to Berkeley and I, I did better my first three and a half years. I And I emphasized better, not great, but better. And I mostly used alcohol, sometimes pills, sometimes Coke, which was new to me, but, you know, similar-ish to meth. Um, occasionally it would roll into the week, but mostly I kept it to the weekends. But I had a very um, life-threatening multi-assailant rape in college. And then I moved in with a, a violent boyfriend and that was it. I, I couldn't hang on. I did not have the reserves um, to be able to hang on with those new traumas. And so I started using meth again in January of my senior year of college. And I used until I was 32. So it was a long haul. It was a long haul. Um, and as I say, during those years, I worked my way down the corporate ladder because I couldn't hold a job because I was always on meth. And so every job was less money and less responsibility. And I held it for less time. And I was my body was starting to break down at 32. I was having physical problems. Meth is a vicious, you know, drug on your body. And I was just, you know, beyond exhausted. I mean, you know, exhausted at the deepest, deepest, deepest level and depressed and hopeless. And my partner was going to throw me out. He was done. He couldn't take it anymore. And so it was all of those things in combination that finally got me to say, well, I might as well try rehab. You know, I didn't have any faith that I could get sober, but, you know, I, I, I was willing to go and to, and to give it a shot. And so I went to rehab when I was 32 years old. And, 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 and let's just reflect on that for a moment, because my, my guess is that after eight years of prolonged meth use and, and then maybe another 10 years previous to that of just other drug use, you've established a pretty good pattern of how Mary Beth survives. This is how I survive. Yes. Right. I, I mean, you know, I mean, we develop habits, you know, poor eating habits that we can't break our entire lives. You had a method of survival, abusive relationships, of whatever else internally was happening with you. And 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 it was tried and true in, in your mind. That's how I survive until it no longer worked. But you had years of that. So so breaking that is, I mean, just just incredible. I don't I don't know what the statistics are, but I'm guessing they're not they're not very good for people that have that extended use uh, and uh, and and dependent and dependency to be able to to break at that point. Much better odds, I'm guessing, if if it's caught early on. So I'll say a couple of things to that is one is on the survival side. I honestly did believe this was my best option. I thought the only other two options were suicide or that I was gonna have a mental break, a psychotic break of some kind and end up institutionalized. I really felt those are my three choices, suicide, institutionalized or drugs. And so that's what I believe. And it seemed like the best of the three options. Yeah. <laughs> and then on the, um, on the stopping, the, the reality is a lot of people do stop in their thirties. A lot of people who develop substance use disorder in their teenage years or their twenties, thirties is a common time for people, first of all, to have accrued 
accrued so many consequences that they just can't handle it anymore. Um, but also um, maybe to, to start to wish for something better and not to spend their life like this. And so, uh, yeah, so, but, but on the other hand, I, I knew I was a severe case. I mean, I, I remember when I was in rehab, I had to go, I had got bronchitis and I had to go to the ER and I happened, I picked up the chart to see what he wrote down and he wrote history of severe drug addiction. And I, and I was kind of mad. It's like, you just met me. I only told you a little, but it's like, no, he was right. History of severe <laughs> drug addiction. Um, um, and so I knew I was in bad shape. And so when I went into rehab, I actually went into a longer term inpatient program. It was 90 days minimum. And I ended up staying for five months. I wasn't really looking at 30 day programs. I didn't think that would be sufficient. So I had to work hard to find, I didn't have insurance and I didn't have cash. And so I had to work hard to find a program that would take me that I could actually afford. Um, and then I had to call every Monday between nine and noon for 10 or 12 weeks until my name worked up the wait list. And wow. if I would have missed one week, I would have dropped to the bottom again. And so I was actually proud that I had accomplished calling every week for 10 weeks until a spot opened up and my name was at the top, which isn't the way it should be, by the way. People need readily accessible, um, affordable treatment. It's most people don't hang on that long. They drop off the list and gosh knows how many more years they're going to spend in their substance use disorder or if they're going to die well and boy just as you're telling that story the irony is that the people who have insurance or can't afford it um are, are usually at the at the beginning of their journey where they're probably not wanting to reach out they don't even they're probably still in denial about their own disease it's at, i mean at the point where you're talking about where it's like holy cow i've exhausted everything i'm near death i have nothing left and and then that's when there are are the least amount of uh, you know facilities or, or or ability to get help. Although I will say that you know I'm on the board for LifeRing and she recovers and I participate and I am happy to see that a higher percentage of people it seems to me without true data but are coming in earlier. And that's good. I mean, you know, this concept of a bottom is an old fashioned way of thinking. I mean, a bottom was always retrospective. Okay, now that I got some lengthy sobriety, where was my bottom looking back? But the problem is people die waiting to hit a bottom. I mean, you're, yeah. you know, intervene now. When I talk to newbies, I tell them intervene as early as you can, because it's fewer years lost and even though you may have destroyed many things in your life, you're going to destroy more if you wait, right? So intervene early. And I do see people come in who have jobs and they're and but they have a problem and they're maybe they got a DUI or you know a partner or someone else is really pressuring them. And I I I'm so happy when I see people come in that haven't destroyed their entire life. Their odds of recovery are higher. Um, and don't get me wrong, low bottoms can recover too, but it is advantageous for multiple reasons to try to get help earlier, to try to break that cycle as early as you can. Awesome. Mary Beth, you just mentioned uh, two programs that before I spoke with you, I was unfamiliar with. And, and so I would, I would love for you, if, if you don't mind, this would be a great time to, to talk about this. I've, I've often believed that not everyone, I mean, your, your childhood and the trauma that you experienced was definitely extreme, and I've heard that story several times from people that have that have ended up in a substance use disorder. But I also know that that people get 
uh, into the depths of their addiction many other ways. And I believe just as there are many ways that people enter addiction, there's many ways that they can get sober as well. And in the past, 12-step programs were, uh, you know, and you talked about an, an old way of thinking about, you know, you've got to hit your bottom. And, and the 12-step program, we've treated substance use disorder for decades and almost an entire century the same way. But there are new thoughts. There are di different ways. And, and you mentioned, too, uh, if you would talk about just both of those briefly, just because a, a lot of people listening or watching today may have never heard about them. Yeah, so and I'll preface that with I have 28 years of sobriety, and I was told when I went into rehab in 93 that the 12-step way was the one and only way. They were really adamant, and I don't believe in a higher power. I wasn't comfortable with a powerless idea or turning my will and my life over, and so I read through all of the 12-step books, and I attended meetings, as I was told to do, and I pulled out some useful ideas, but it wasn't the right fit. And so when I got home from rehab, I went to the library and I emphasize that because there was no Google. Okay. <laughs> went to the library and I did find options. They existed then and they exist today. And the two that I'm affiliated with are Life Ring, Secular Recovery, and She Recovers Foundation. I'm on the board for both. And so Life Ring um, is uh, basically their approach is about building a personal recovery plan, which is what I did, a plan that's going to work for you as an individual. And they focus on the three S's of sobriety, secularity, and self-help. And so for us, uh, we view we view your success and recovery as based on your own motivation and your own efforts. In other words, we don't view you as powerless. And we want people to really do an analysis about sort of who they are, where they where they are, where they want to go, and how they think they can get there, and figure out what their initial recovery plan is. And then it gets adjusted over time because you know you succeed in your initial goals and now you can set new ones. And so we have a workbook that can help people do the analysis to figure out what their initial plan should look like. I mean, the reality is people don't all come in the rooms in the same place, right? We're talking about, I was talking about people who come in, some of whom have a job. Well, one person may have a job, but no destroyed relationships. Somebody else, it could be the opposite. A lot of people have uh, mental health issues and trauma histories like I did, or they just have different personalities and learning styles and philosophical beliefs. Um, and so it's really about what plan will work for me. And we encourage members that this doesn't mean alone. It means read, research, attend, listen, actively look for and grab onto those ideas that you think will be useful. That's exactly what I did. I read materials for the four groups that I found. I went to meetings for all of them and I pulled out the ideas I thought would help me. And the other reality is that sometimes what works in the beginning or what you need in the beginning, it changes over time as you evolve in your recovery or as you evolve in life. And so um, part of it is really adjusting your plan intermittently and seeing, okay, you know, it's been three months. So now what, what's my new plan? I've accomplished these three things so I can add, I can start attacking some other areas. And so that's their basic idea. And now, then- are there, are there meetings for- <laughs> For, for for this group in all communities or if they're not in, in a specific community that someone is listening, like if, if say that that's not happening here in Fresno, uh, are there online meetings in that are that are that they can get a hold of? And are there sponsors or is there similar uh, language that that the recovery community is going to be familiar with that they can understand and connect with? 
So um, before COVID, we had around 200 meetings in the U.S. and we have meetings in other countries. And we had six meetings online pre-COVID because we didn't have a meeting in Montana, right? And it allowed people to participate. We have around 85 meetings online right now, including some for specialty groups like women or LGBTQIA+, veterans, other, other subgroups, and workbook meetings. Um, so there there. Every week, more meetings are going back to face to face, or new meetings are opening face to face. But if there isn't a meeting in your community, then yes, we will we will continue to have a large number of online meetings going forward. In part because people have gotten used to them, and a lot of people like them now, and it's easier. So it'll be it'll be a mix. The other thing to know about LifeRing is that. If you want to go to the, let's say, local AA or NA meeting and do LifeRing online, LifeRing is okay with that. We, we do not require an exclusive commitment to LifeRing. If our members think that going to both LifeRing and 12 Steps is the, the best chance for their success, LifeRing supports that. That's okay. You do what you need. And so you can mix and match. If someone tells you you have to sign in blood an exclusive agreement with someone, that to me is a red flag. <laughs> um, you, it should be about what do you need? And that's what LifeRing encourages. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Fantastic. So LifeRing. So that's, I'm, I'm going to get more information about that too, just so I can, and, and maybe even add that to, uh, uh, to our website. Cause we have a, a page of resources. Oh, good. So, that would be great. Yeah. 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 So I'll get that information from, I'm, I'm sure it's just lifering.org.org. Okay. Yeah. Excellent. Okay. And now, and now you're then the other organization that you represent as well. So okay. She Recovers Foundation, uh, which is SheRecovers.org, that is actually not just for substance use disorder. About 75% um, of the members have one, but it's also about recovery from trauma, mental health, behavioral disorders like eating disorders, shopping disorders, also self-harm, grief. It's really, um, we say everyone's in recovery from something, but it's really everything in one place. And the reason for that is because most women with a substance use disorder also have one or more of these other areas that they're also in recovery from. And so when she recovers, it's not siloed off. Like here's, you talk about your substance use disorder. And in this other meeting, you talk about your eating disorder or your mental health um, uh, group. So it's all together. And so we have uh, two meetings a day every day. We have um, local geographic chapters who have meetings in person and online. We have subgroups as well, like legal professionals, first responders, women with high needs children. We have groups like that that meet separately. And, um, and then we have retreats, oh, and yoga and dance. So She Recovers is big into the mind-body connection. And so we have yoga meetings and dance meetings. And we have a very active Facebook group that the women support each other and share what's going on and and will literally say i need support who's out there and women will respond to her and um there's uh youtube videos mental health mondays so there's a lot of a lot of different aspects to she recovers awesome well and and just in general too i i have to say that uh, and again my eyes have been opened uh, much more than i ever wanted them to but now that they're the, the recovery community in 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 general that I found is very supportive of, of their, uh, of their group. And, and, and I can say when, when Zach was going through his issues, I attended, you know, non meetings and, and other 12 step programs and any meeting I could find that where I could get some support. 
I also went to some AA and NA meetings. And I have to say that I found the 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 greatest uh, sense of of hope and encouragement wasn't from the Naranon meetings that I was attending uh, because we were all just very broken people, right? That were just continually sad with little hope. <clears throat> but it's when I went to the NA meetings, and those were a blast. I mean, the, you know, the, the 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 people there were excited because their lives were changing, right? And and maybe that's where that hope was. I mean, they they saw a future that was that was bright and hopeful, and and uh, maybe they had already lived through the worst for them. I mean, maybe that's what it was. But I just I, I found. I found that the, the support groups in recovery and the community in recovery is just very, very loving and caring and, and helpful. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the different groups have different philosophies and even meeting formats. Like in Life Ring, we, we don't have a meeting format and either in She Recovers where someone speaks for like 20 minutes of the hour and tells their story. We have a focus on how what's going on today what happened last week and what's coming up next week. And She Recovers similarly is focused on current events. Also FYI, She Recovers is also multiple paths. So you can do 12 steps in She Recovers, Women for Sobriety, all that. Um, but yeah, it, it's, um, you know, it's, it is a, a relief when you're new to see people who have succeeded and who have had the same issue. It's part of why I named my book from junkie to judge. So it's, you know, from junkie to judge, one woman's triumph over trauma and addiction, because the trauma was a separate recovery uh, or intertwined recovery. But I, I really wanted to be able to stand up and connect myself, own myself as one as an IV meth addict. And part of the reason is because I think in the media, they sort of present it sometimes like it's hopeless for people that are shooting meth, right? They're never going to recover. It's they're right. too far gone. Right. And so I wanted to really affiliate myself with that group and say, you know, she is me, right? I was her. And look how it ended up. And it's not even that I think judge is the most important part of my recovery because it isn't. It's just that, um, I mean, I'm a proud of the accomplishment, but it has a certain positive social resonance. And right. it's really sort of a shorthand way to say in recovery, even an IV meth addict in recovery, it, it's, you can no idea what she could be, where she, her life could right. go. If we help her get her feet underneath her, if we help her um, get her sobriety, if we help her move forward. And so it's, it's all those reasons. And it's about standing up um, and being, you know, hopefully a sign of hope for others that they too can recover and that thing. And sometimes people say to me, well, not everybody goes, you know, goes to law school and becomes a judge. And it's like, well, I didn't know it. 20, 20, I became, I went to law school six and a half years sober. I became a judge 20 years sober. It's not as if I, that was my goal on day one, right? It's really about what's my right next step. What's my right next goal. And those that builds up over six years and 20 years. And you can really, you know, move forward in all kinds of ways with that kind of time. And so it's just a reminder that um, in recovery, our lives can be more than we can possibly imagine on day one, when we step into rehab or step into a peer support group. Well, I, and I think of the people that I uh, have the privilege to speak with that are that are new in their in their in their recovery. I, I think many of them still have very negative outlooks as to what they can become. They're happy about where they're at right now and 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 where they're going, and they see that as a as a wonderful step forward. But they don't 
and I think, and a lot of them that are younger too, you know, young people like to think about, I want what I want now, yeah. right? I need to have the new car now. I need to have a house now. I need to have all the furnishings now. And, uh, uh, you know, as, as I've gotten older, I realized that for me, it's just, you know, maybe having uh, 1% more of, of productivity every day, just a little bit more. I just want today, I want to be a little bit better today than I was yesterday. Not even a lot, just a little, just a little bit. And if I can do that and I can, I can build on that, then, then that can grow. And th that brings you to well, one of the last topics I'd love for us. I'd love to get your, your thoughts on it is, uh, and, and I know it's been around for a long time. It's gaining momentum as far as just the, the verbiage and people are talking more about harm reduction. I turned on, uh, I turned on the radio the, the other day and, uh, and it was a NPR station, and they were having they were having this big discussion about addiction and 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 harm reduction was one of the the main topics. And what was great about it is it wasn't it, it wasn't uh, gosh how how can I say this? It, it it wasn't like a couple old hippies talking about you, you know you know like what harm reduction you know you know could be or or what it is. But it was just it was a a, a well thought out, meaningful, scientific. Uh, medical discussion about what it was and 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 how it works and and how it can really change how we think and again it's about just about moving forward and again you know and I'll, I'll I'm gonna shut up now I want to hear what you have to say <laughs> well well I will say that I personally took advantage of harm reduction in my addiction I used the needle exchange um, it was in San Francisco in the late 80s early 90s it wasn't legal but it was tolerated. And so I believe it was a private organization that was doing the needle exchange. It was twice a week and the police would just drive by. They just, they just drove by. So it was tolerated. And that is, you know, and the reason was because of AIDS and HIV. It was because they viewed the risk of AIDS spreading further in the community as a more, um, a higher negative than giving people needles. And so that's how that part of it started. And I took advantage of that. And it I think it significantly reduced my risk. When I got sober, I didn't have HIV. I didn't have hep C. I didn't have any of the bloodborne, you know, diseases that I could have had. So, so for, so for people to, that, cause even when I'm, when I'm talking to people now and I'm giving out Narcan and I'm doing Narcan trainings, I still get discussions from people, but if I have that, aren't I giving permission to my kids to, to be an opiate user? I mean, did you ever in getting a clean needle think to yourself for a moment, oh, now I'm going to keep using because I have a clean needle. <laughs> Was that even in your mindset? Look, I mean, the data, there, there, there's a lot of data around m most of these harm reduction techniques um, from Canada and Europe, right? And so whether it's the needle exchange or now they call it safe syringe programs where they don't actually make you necessarily exchange a needle because if you're a homeless or a drug addict, you can't always you know, keep track of them. Right. But, um, but, but there's that there's, there's Narcan, there's safe injection sites, you know, which are also called overdose prevention centers, many techniques of meeting people at where they are. But the data shows that for example, the needles giving out free needles does not increase the percentage of drug addiction more, more than that. It actually reduces it. Because people who have access to these services like overdose prevention centers or needle syringe services, they actually go into treatment at like three to five times the rate of people that don't have wow. access. And part of it is just that you are 
interacting with um, with people who care about you and interacting with professionals, medical professionals. I remember even at my needle exchange, and I'm sure these were volunteers, they all they wouldn't remember you. How are you doing today? You know, how's it been going? Um, and they wouldn't push things about treatment, but sometimes they might mention, if you ever need a referral, you know, let us know, we can help you. The, the syringe services programs all have referrals to treatment and so do the overdose prevention centers. And so when people feel connected to their community, you know, some seen as a person that can increase their um, willingness or ability to accept treatment. And the other side of that is that um, it's not, you're you're not having to spend so much of your life trying to just manage your substance use disorder, right? Which means you actually have time to think and, 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 and reflect. It's not, it can reduce the chaos, the running, running, running to try to meet your needs as far as your drugs go, which ha has a positive mental effect. But part of it is just access to people who care and who you feel like are on your side. So the data is strong from Canada and from Europe for all these things. And the other part thing I'll say about harm reduction is to me, it's two prongs. One is people can't get recovery if they don't, if they die, right? And so there is the, the you want the death reduction benefit of harm reduction. But even if someone is not ready for going into treatment or even never goes into treatment, we still don't want them to die over their substance use disorder, their mental health condition of substance use disorder. We don't want them to die over it. And we want them to be as healthy as they can be within that confines. It's better for the individual, but it's actually also better for society. Because I know, for example, in most major cities, emergency room visits and treatment of people that are homeless or um, on the edges uh, financially with substance use disorders, it's very expensive. <laughs> and wow. so even if you only want to look at where your tax dollars are going, it's harm reduction can reduce the overall cost because it's keeping people healthy. But, you know, they are people. I care about them for that reason, but it's multi-benefit. Well, and, and, uh, Again, to 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 the the point of our foundation and our mission about about ending the stigma of addiction. I mean, that's got to. And again, you said it well about how you were with people that cared about you. I mean, what better way to to tell someone that they're not the disease, right? You're not the cancer. You know, you're not your addiction. You know, but you're a person that we care about. Yeah, you know, and the other thing I'll say about that is that some there's this myth. Um, that abstinence is a light bulb, okay? That that you that you, one day you, the, we, the person with a substance use disorder will become 100% committed to abstinence. That is not how it usually works in my experience. That is not how it worked for me. I I, I was really um, unsure that it was even on the board of possibility for me to get sober. But I used three times in my first five months, which was way better. Um, and it took me longer than that to really get 100% committed to abstinence. And so I think we need to look at it as often it's a process and harm reduction can be part of that process. One version of harm reduction I see in meetings is sometimes people, let's say they're addicted to alcohol and cannabis, they might give up alcohol first because they feel like it's having the bigger negative impact. And then when they get that under control, they'll start thinking about the cannabis. So it's not always has to be all or nothing. We need to um, let people find what they're 
um, what's going to work for them, what process moving forward and get rid of this idea that it's 100% abstinence or it's failure, because that's not a helpful concept. And it's not realistic as to how it works in the real world. Well, and I often say in, in treating other diseases, if we told someone that, you know, say, say, say your cancer tumors, if unless you are completely absent of any cancer, then you're a failure and we're going to stop all treatment. How ridiculous is that, right? Right. We're, we're thrilled if we reduce the size of the tumor. Right. And even on diseases that you have some impact on, like diabetes, we don't, you know, beat people up or, or stigmatize them if they have a piece of candy once in a while. Right. I mean, you know, it's really got to be about what's the person ready for and how can we support where they are today? And hopefully they will then move forward in what we think is a positive direction. But even reducing harm is a positive. It can have a very positive impact on people's lives. Yeah. Oh, no, that's awesome. Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, uh, gosh, uh, Mary Beth, there's been so much that we've talked about today. I, I know I've taken a, a bunch of notes uh, myself. I am. Uh, I'm so excited to uh, to to read your book when it uh, when it comes out. And I, I know it's uh, if it's not available now. It's going to be available real soon by the time that, that this shows. So we're uh, excited to hear about that. Uh, if we want to uh, get in touch with you, find out more about you. What are the ways that, that, that the audience can reach out and find out about Mary Beth? Sure. So the book is available on Amazon and all the usual sites from Junkie to Judge, Woman's Triumph Over Trauma and Addiction. And I will tell your listeners that 30% of the book is about recovery and there's guidelines and checklists in the back that they might find useful. Um, my website is junkietojudge.com. I have some essays I've written, some, some podcasts and other information. And you can message me through my website. I will answer every message. And I'm on Twitter at MaryBethO underscore. And so um, I, I hope everyone reaches out in one way or another. Awesome. And and as we as we close down today, uh, Mary Beth, is there one message that an, an overriding thought that you want to leave uh, the audience with today? I think when you were talking earlier about wanting the recovery to be fast, that caught my attention because I think part of it for friends and family in particular has to be patience, right? That recovery is not usually a straight uphill line. It's often, you know, up and down. And that I know that can create fear when the person uses drugs after a period of sobriety. But to me, it's really the important question is, are they still committed to their plan has there been improvement? Are they putting together perhaps longer strings of sobriety or shorter periods of using? You know, look at the bigger picture and try to manage your fear. It is usually a process. It, a slip does not mean they will not succeed. And so um, I know it's hard, but, but patience for both the person in recovery and the friends and family can be actually really, really helpful. Yeah. <laughs> what, a, what a great message there. Absolutely. Well, again, thank you so much for uh, for joining us today, and and hopefully we can uh, get together and, and talk again sometime in the future. This is fantastic. Perfect. I appreciate you having me. Thank you so much. You bet. And for everyone today, as as always, I'm going to ask you to uh, reach out to someone uh, today. Uh, tell them that you love them. This is Zach's dad. This has been an episode of Zach's Life. Thank you so much for listening. For more info on our foundation and for addiction resources, visit ZacharyHortonFoundation.org or check us out on Facebook and Instagram. If you have a story to tell and want to be a guest on our podcast, email me directly at jim at ZacharyHortonFoundation.org.